Good morning, everybody. As in my last talk, I'm at Zen Center, but I'm upstairs, and then I'm going to come down <laughs> after the Dharma talk's over. And maybe this will be the last time I'm doing that because three or four of you asked me, said that you'd rather not hear me, see me when I'm muffled. You'd rather see me online. So also, well, there's another factor too, but I won't get into that. So anyway... Uh, good to see you all this morning. Wonderful to see you. First thing I'm going to do is put up a little uh, screen share here. And um, will someone raise their hand if they can see the screen share? Good. You can see the screen share. So today and next week, I'm going to be talking, uh, giving uh, some conceptual background and detail uh, about the workshop that I did yesterday, which was experiential, so I didn't talk very much. Uh, but uh, I want to contextualize what I did in the what I did in the workshop. And you don't need to have been in the workshop to to do this uh, at all. Uh, so. Uh, I uh, I'm going to talk about uh, this uh, the self in early Buddhism, uh, the first turning of the wheel, and uh, just touch on the self in the second and third turning of the wheel, which happened 500 years later, and how they're relevant and how we practice with them. And I'm going to do that. Uh, Today and then tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, next Sunday, I'm going to do the um, uh, uh, little more on the second, third tier, turning, featuring the tetralemma. So the first turning of the wheel. Um, the first, they call it a wheel. It's the wheel of uh, the eightfold path, the, field, the wheel of life. We go on the wheel to practice. We have an aspiration. We practice and um, uh, hope to enlighten our lives by practicing. <clears throat> so the first turning of the wheel has as a, it's one of its key components uh, the the fiction of the self as we understand it. That instead of uh, the fictional self that we understand, the so-called self is made up of five aggregates, form or contact, sensation, perception or label, impulse and consciousness. And um, uh, <clears throat> we have a specific event uh, that triggers uh, us to have a sensation, and that triggers a label. We label the sensation of a series of sensations, and that then triggers an impulse to do something, or to think something, or to feel something, and then and then consciousness starts talking about it, starts starts uh, moving conceptually to to figure it out, understand it, plan it, deal with it. Uh, remember how it's similar to another experience, et cetera, et cetera. 
So these five come together to shape our experience according to early Buddhism. The problem is that the, the, the bottom one, consciousness, tends to take over, in case you haven't noticed, <laughs> that the first four happen in the present moment. Um, the uh, consciousness is, is always moving around from past to future to could have to would have to should have to might have to memory, which is wonderful. It's wonderful that we have consciousness. But when it takes over all five so that we, we're not present anymore, that's a problem. And that's a problem for human beings. Um, so uh, 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 day before yesterday, there was a cardinal in my backyard. <laughs> and my eyes out the second floor window first made contact with a small red shape. That's the first one. Then I had uh, thought cardinal. That was my label. That was my perception, cardinal. Then I had an impulse to uh, tell my wife, <laughs> Linda, cardinal. <laughs> and then I thought about it. I thought about it. And uh, perception label is called samajna in Sanskrit, which means together, no, nya, no. Based on my contact, based on my perception, based on my sensation, uh, I, I labeled it as a cardinal. I, I brought the sensation and the contact together and labeled it as a cardinal. Then, based on the labeling, uh, I had an impulse. Psalm, skara, together maker. I made something out of it. I made something out of my perception. <clears throat> and then consciousness takes over. And that's all fine. It's just that we spend so much of our time in consciousness that consciousness solidifies into a self that's trying to dominate all of the others and overlooks them and trying to shape them up <laughs> and trying to do whatever it can to uh, have a life that is, is relatively free of pain. So sensation uh, is usually or always in this, in this early Buddhism, either positive, negative, or neutral. It just happens like that. It's below the level of conscious awareness. And the label is just the moment when we become aware of our contact and the connecting sensation. <clears throat> I could have labeled it as cardinal or delightful if I didn't know what it is, or wow, that would have been a label too. That would have been a perception too, just wow. But since I've identified cardinals many times, I label it as cardinal. And our impulse depends on our past conditioning. My impulse was to say to my wife, there was a cardinal in the tree because we've seen cardinals in our trees before. 
And we're always excited when they appear. And I delightfully told Linda, I was making something of my experience, samskara, making something of my experience. Again, storytelling is the conscious mind. It tells a story about my experience. And that's a wonderful feature of being human. Look at all the stories we tell each other. We tell ourselves and we tell the worlds. But those stories gel into a solid idea about a self who is a storyteller, who's got to change the story or get those other aggregates to behave better when they're just coming as they are. So we, our story calcifies our experience. On the other hand, stories are good. Stories are the gel which holds cultures together. Stories are the gel which holds religion together. Religion is always about received stories. Buddhism too, received stories. Stories about Buddha, stories about Bodhidharma, stories about innumerable ancestors, including our birth story in the second and third turning, not in the first turning, but in the third, second and third turning, our birth story is Prajnaparamita. We were all born from the goddess of non-duality, the goddess of non-separation the goddess of connectivity. We come out of her and we, we return to her. And of course, the problem with storytelling is that, as I said, we just spend all our time in our stories. <laughs> so yesterday we were practicing trying to bring the aggregates into view, all of them. <clears throat> And speaking of stories, uh, uh, I've told lots and lots of stories about my first teacher, uh, Suzuki Roshi, and some stories about my second teacher, Katagiri Roshi. And uh, I just, uh, uh, somebody just, uh, Rosemary Taylor, just a couple of months ago, shared this book with me, Zen is Right Now, which is a book of stories about my teacher, my first teacher, Suzuki Roshi. And she said, Tim, you should see this book. It's got five of your stories in it about it. Well, they're not all stories. Some are just vignettes. Oh, so of course I, I bought it, right? <laughs> I read my story, my own stories. <laughs> and these stories, as we tell them, even during the same generation, they tend to get more elaborate and, and and more, and they lose their, there's no, there's no such thing as recovered memory. The memory is malleable. So they become more how we'd like them to be. And of course, in religion, we're trying to express some deep truth. So our stories are an attempt to express that deep truth. So there are five of, there, there are about a hundred of his stories about him in this book. Um, five or mine. And in my other book, uh, my first book, not my second book, there are 15 stories about it. So that's what informs 
our practice as, as Zen Buddhists, these vignettes about how the ancestors lived, going all the way back to Buddha and before Buddha to Prajnaparamita herself, how they lived so that we can, we can uh, uh, be imprinted by them and then manifest ourselves through our sitting practice, manifested ourselves. So it's no longer just a story, it's who we are. <clears throat> so stories are, are wonderful, are wonderful. And if the story I tell is not one which bolsters my sense of little separate self, which is scared and trying to protect itself as we all have been doing um, in this pandemic, with this tribalism, and now with Putin, <clears throat> Putin replacing some of the other dictators as the adversary for so many people. So we tell ourselves stories that aren't so good because it's scary. We tell our story and we repeat those stories over and over again. And if we watch TV, if you watch CNN, I recommend only watching <laughs> three, three minutes a day of CNN. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> the same story over and over again. And they're not very nice stories. They're not positive, inspirational stories that help us live this teaching. But we should watch them. We shouldn't ignore them because we need to pay attention to the bad stuff that's happening in the world so that we can, we can help, so that we can help. So we have wonderful stories and we have stories that aren't so cool. <clears throat> so before I started, someone whose name I didn't know, uh, just before I started my talk was yawning. And I thought, oh, already yawning. <laughs> and I haven't even started my talk. <laughs> so I made contact with the yawn made contact first aggregate my sensation was a little bit of bodily contraction <laughs> even though I hadn't started to speak yet and then perception was yawning and then um, I don't know what my impulse was I'm not even sure what my impulse was sometimes we don't know I think I had an impulse to look away <laughs> I think that was my impulse. Look away at the other people. Um, and that's all part of how we live. Um, how we live. And then story taking takes over and begins to say, oh, that guy must not gotten enough sleep last night. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to be dozing off in my talk. Maybe he sees that I'm a... I'm talking, he sees my name on the screen and he's already bored, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Because the stories we tend to tell based on our, our fragile self about ourselves are more negative. There's a negative self bias to the little fragile self. And we cling to these and we reflect endlessly on them. 
And so we're almost never in Zen is right now. <laughs> and I'm laughing because all the talks, all the stories are, help, are, are meant to help us come to Zen is right now. He has another book of stories also that came out that just last year, Zen is right here. That's bringing the aggregates into view. That's not having the first four aggregates smothered by the fifth one. And then we have a life, then we have vitality. So Linda and I had a delightful conversation. She's put a bunch of bird houses around the yard and a bird bath just in the last few months. A delightful conversation about how to attract more cardinals and how lucky we are during this pandemic to have one. We only have one. We're in Uptown. <laughs> We're not in Minnetonka. We get one cardinal. <laughs> Comes regularly and brings joy into our pandemic. Zero degrees, colorless Minnesota winter. One patch of red out there with just the black and the white. Wonderful. Wonderful. So as long as the, our, our narrative doesn't override our immediate experience so that we spend so much time thinking about and looking for cardinals, <laughs> there was no cardinal this morning. Oh, just sparrows. <laughs> we, then we don't appreciate sparrows anymore because <laughs> sparrows are just black and white. <laughs> they just... Uh, and they proliferate, in case you haven't seen. They take over our, our bird bath. <laughs> oh, now I'm fixated on sparrows. Consciousness wants only sparrows. I mean, oh, excuse me, cardinals. Consciousness wants only cardinals. And the sparrows go away. Poor consciousness, God, give me a sparrow. And that's the way the, way the little self behaves. It's the way it behaves. Bringing the aggregates into view is just the simple exercise of appreciating our beginner's mind. In a beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are truth. There are few. There are few. So now I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the second and third turning of the wheel. <clears throat> So the second and the third turning of the wheel uh, happened 500 years later, roughly. This is the birth of Mahayana Buddhism. And um, uh, basically, the self is brought back in. The self, which has been deconstructed in early Buddhism, is, well, actually, first... The, everything is deconstructed. And then out of that deconstruction, uh, there's a discussion of Buddha nature or big self. Once we've just deconstructed everything, including those aggregates, because those become labels we get attached to. We develop stories about those who's doing best at getting, bringing the aggregates into view. How can I do it better? Well, they're just constructs too. They're only constructs. So uh, we deconstruct those and then we settle into what's called 
Buddha nature, our still nature, our joyful nature, Tadagata Garbha, the womb, our womb nature, Garbha womb, Prajnaparamita, our mama right here, our center of being, <laughs> our mama right here, and our deep center of being, which, which we overlook because it gets so caught in consciousness wanting to control everything. So the self comes back, but now it's a big self. <laughs> now it's now it's bodhicitta. <laughs> now it's one interdependent whole. Now it's whole being, being Buddha, Buddha nature, inner being. All life is inner being, and we are a manifestation of that inner being, just as we are, because everything is connected to everything else. We are that. We still are our little selves too, but ego doesn't mean to be dissed anymore. It's something, a crucially important manifestation of Buddha nature. <laughs> Nothing gets dissed because this is a non-dual teaching. That's the second and third turning, non-dual teachings. So ego is important to take care of, important. And the scriptures emphasize now that we have this Buddha nature and this non-dual ability to feel connected to everything and everyone. Now we should be bodhisattvas. Now we should reach out to people who are in pain, to people who feel separate, to who feel cut off, who feel isolated. And we do that. That's a bodhisattva ideal. It comes with the second and the third turnings in the wheel. And there are many stories of self-sacrifice then that come up in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, early Mahayana, and then all the way through to modern day. So many people are attracted to, to Zen and even to, and to Vipassana who've been in help, have been helping professionals social workers, therapists, or they want to become priests. Um, and that's all wonderful. That's all wonderful. <clears throat> but I want to talk this morning about self-appreciation. That means appreciation of small self within the big self. Now, ego, right here in the middle of big self, is ego, small self. Consciousness. Consciousness is here, but it's also right here, right here, at least in Mahayana. <clears throat> Not so much in the first journey. <laughs> and we burn out if we don't do a little bit of self appreciation. We don't, we burn out. We burn out. And we also get kind of fixated on, we should be better helpers. Why didn't we help better? We should help more. And, that, and we lose our whole being Buddha nature. We lose that. And we do, I think there are three ways in which we devalue little self, little self, as a manifestation of big self. 
We devalue it when we're codependent. Codependency groups in 12-step. I never knew they had 12-step groups for codependency until last year. One of you told me. I thought, oh, that's good. Codependent. That means I need you to, I need to take care of you to feel okay about myself. I need, need you to be well and healthy or I'm not well. And I need to do more to take care of you because I get slurped up by your neediness. I get slurped up by it. Well, that kind of self-sacrifice is not very good to be a real bodhisattva, to be a joyfully bodhisattva, joyful bodhisattva. Well, the second way we devalue is if we had a religious upbringing that devalued that devalued taking care of the little self, of the small self, of, of little Tim, <clears throat> of little Chris, of little Janet, taking care of them, following them. But we had a religious upbringing. Maybe my Irish side of the family, I wasn't raised in this tradition, but my grandmother was sure disappointed. <laughs> um, uh, but my mother's our, our religious upbringing, we're disciples of Christ. We put ourselves last. And if we put ourselves first, it's not okay. We can't have needs. We can't have wants. We've got to be bodhisattvas. Bodhisattva puts themselves last. Well, then we get caught by that. And we forget all being Buddha nature. Whole being big nature. All Buddha means is awake. So don't, don't need to personify it. You can't personify it. All being, we're awake to the whole being, including taking care of our little selves. And the third way, I think, the third way we devalue the little self is through low self-esteem, which isn't necessarily related to being codependent. It could be, or relig religious upbringing. It could be but it has to do with conditioning, some conditioning, some conditioning. It may not be the church. It may not be our parents, but some conditioning. It's not okay just to have needs, not okay just to have desires. The Dalai Lama made an interesting comment, which you, many of you are familiar with. He said something about Westerners, why you know like yourself, he said. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know. I don't know if that's a more of a Japanese, what's something a Japanese teacher would say, why don't, why don't you like yourself? Didn't understand why Western practitioners don't like themselves, why they don't have self-trust. And of course, uh, many of us have been doing a meta practice, uh, a loving kindness practice the last many years at Zen Center but even though that was not part of our original Zen tradition, a meta practice, a loving kindness practice, which needs to include ourselves, needs to include ourselves. And I've talked before about how when I do this one-to-one -one with people, um, and by the way, I'm happy to work one-to-one -one with any of you. Um, when I do it, many people have the biggest problem with themselves even a bigger problem than with someone like Vladimir Putin. 
<laughs> they have trouble with ourselves. <laughs> they said, oh, Vladimir Putin's suffering. <laughs> I, I can extend, I can, I can say to him, may he feel safe, may he feel secure, may he feel loved, because maybe if he does that, he'll get out of Ukraine. <laughs> but I can't do it to myself. Well, then I have them bring a pet in and then do it with a pet and then sit with a pet and then they do it we. They can usually do it we if they have a pet. So this is an important practice for us as Americans, maybe as all Westerners. Self-appreciation, embracing ourselves and our imperfections so that we can thrive. Now I'm going to turn off the screen um, because I think I've done that for long enough. Let's see. You are screen sharing. Stop sharing. Okay. Um, and just talk a little more um, about this. So yesterday I had people practice self-appreciation and I pointed out the three elements of self-appreciation. One is bear awareness. Um, you could say mindfulness. That's what everybody says these days, mindfulness, although there's no mindfulness in Zen tradition. <laughs> that word has taken over the <laughs> taken over Buddhism in, in the West. It's a wonderful word. <laughs> but I prefer bear awareness. And one reason I prefer bear awareness is that I'm awful at mindfulness. I'm very absent-minded, in case you don't know me. I get an F grade on mindfulness. Bare awareness, which means just sitting doing nothing. <laughs> just letting the thoughts pass through without identifying with them. Well, well I've, I've been practicing for many, many years. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> Self-appreciation, bare awareness, bare awareness, which means paying attention to your good qualities as well as your qualities that aren't so good. But it also means not taking for granted your good qualities, which Americans tend to do. Maybe they do in Europe too. I don't know, I only know Americans. That's the first element. The second element is self-kindness, expressing your appreciation for your good qualities as you would Tell a friend that you like her good qualities. You don't have any problem telling your friend you like her good qualities. How about treating yourself as a friend? Could you think you could do that? Third element is common humanity. There's a common humanity. Part of being human is having good qualities. We all have them. And if we feel that common humanity, we don't feel isolated. We don't feel isolated. But as I said, we all have a negative bias toward ourselves. Notice when someone gives you a compliment. <clears throat> I remember when people gave me compliments many years ago before I had been doing this practice day in and day out from the course of my adult life. And people would give me a compliment and I would say, but I have a lot of bad qual qualities too. <laughs> right? I have a lot of bad qualities too. <laughs> I don't want to seem arrogant, right? 
I don't want to seem like I'm superior to others or I look superior to others. If someone tells you you're really a kind person, you're really a kind person. You are. I, the most of you who I know, you're really kind people. I feel just fortunate to know you. You're really kind. At first, I, I may not feel that, but at second or third, you're really kind. Someone says to, to you, you're really a kind person. Do you immediately say, you should see me when I'm around my partner? <laughs> Or do you say, my good qualities are not a problem that needs to be fixed, so I'm not going to focus on them. I'm going to, you say that to yourself, because we want to fix everything. We want to fix everything about ourselves. But what if your good qualities don't need to be fixed and you can just, just acknowledge them, just enjoy them? Just appreciate them. We all have them. We all have them. It's part of being human. So yesterday when uh, uh, I was doing the workshop with folks, uh, someone talked about back, a backdraft they were experiencing after they'd done the self-appreciation exercise. A, a backdraft, which happens when you, when you appreciate yourself. It can happen. All pain from the past comes up when you, when you appreciate yourself. You might even feel queasy and anxious or short of breath. This person didn't. But this person just said to me, shouldn't this make me feel better? This made me feel worse <laughs> to do the self-appreciation exercise. I, I'm not laughing at, at that person. This happens to all of us because we're so embedded in negative self-bias. We just get embedded in it. So I had a, a one-to-one I was mentoring named Danny, um, and I was doing this meta thing with him, and uh, uh, I had him put his hand on his heart to help him speak kindly to himself, and he said, I don't want to do that anymore, Tim. I feel worse. Huh. So we didn't do that. Didn't do that. Instead of just appreciating ourselves, we intellectualize, we get agitated, we withdraw, we space out, we criticize ourselves or others. But we can, in our zazen practice, just come back to being the whole being Buddha nature that we are by turning attention to our butt on the cushion or the chair, breathing through our lower belly and appreciating that little self is part of big self. They're not two. Everything <laughs> is inner being. You think, oh, it doesn't include little self. Little self is just a conglomeration. Well, everything is conglomerated and, and unconglomerating, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so, and in the broader context, why do you have self-appreciation? Maybe because of all the karma that you've done in the past. <laughs> all the karma that maybe your friends have done, or maybe a parent did, or teachers. 
people helped you develop your good qualities. So you can be proud of your good qualities knowing that they come interpersonally from experiences. And if you haven't had that experiences with parents, some of us didn't have it with parents. Maybe you got it from a grandparent, something some of us didn't have it with grandparents. Maybe you got it from a, a teacher, or maybe you got it from just uh, going to the movies every Saturday <laughs> and watching your favorite comedies over and over again, <laughs> as I used to do. <laughs> Much better than hang out around home. And I began to laugh and appreciate myself. <laughs> Never know, never know. All the karma ever created by me. Now, when we say that downstairs, we're talking about negative karma. But what about all the karma ever created by me that's positive? I now put, fully avow that karma too. You have positive karma or you wouldn't be sitting here right now. So my parents did pass on a little bit of this, this stuff to me. My mother uh, uh, had a little bit of appreciation of others and a little bit of appreciation of herself. But then I also had my Zen teacher, which I, whom I met when I was not quite 21. <clears throat> Our karma happens in different ways. And it's easier to accept our good karma when we realized how intertwined we are with others, as I said. Marion Williamson says, we were all <clears throat> meant to shine as children do. We were all meant to shine as children do. She says, as we let our own light shine, we give, give others permission to do the same. It's true. <laughs> It's true. We just share your, the haiku that you wrote or the, or the little piece of artwork you did. And you think, oh, I don't want to share it. I don't want anybody to see it. It comes from you. It comes from the, your inner being. Maybe your inner being is flawed. Show your flawed inner being. It's beautiful. The best poems show the flaws. The best artwork shows the flaws. We were, we're all meant to shine as children do. As we let our own light shine, we give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> our presence, our presence liberates each other. Liberation upon liberation and liberation, just hanging out together, <laughs> appreciating ourselves and appreciating others as we hang out together. We really missed hanging out together. <laughs> oh, boy, we've been in this forced monastery. We didn't sign up for this monastery. I, got, I thought I finished monastery by the time I was 25, and here I am. 77, I got put in a new monastery I did not sign up for. <laughs> Anybody feel that? <laughs> we, 
we're going to be we're going to be free from this monster pretty soon i think <laughs> oh i'll get my hopes up consciousness will take over <laughs> <clears throat> because we don't know. The pandemic is our teacher. It's showing us the waving, the, the flow of our life. We don't know, but we can bring the aggregates into view. They're always coming into view. We can live in the present. And we can value the past and the future as manifestations of consciousness. So one last story from consciousness. This is a story that may, I may that I've talked about before, and a story that my friend said, boy, you embellish on that story since you told that to me 20 years ago. I think you've, it's mostly made up. And I said, no, I remember it. <laughs> I don't know. And he said, well, then why did you tell it to me differently 20 years ago? <laughs> anyway, here's the story. Those of you who've been around me for a while have heard the stories. <clears throat> so my teacher wanted me to... Uh, it might even be in my first book, this story. Wanted me to drive him from San Francisco to Hillsboro, which is a really, was a well, really wealthy uh, suburb, uh, south of San Francisco, to uh, meet with a woman who was interested in learning about the Dharma. So I drove him down. He had his black robes on, his black traveling robes. And she and we were at the bottom of the hill, and she looked like she lived in this sort of palace at the top of the hill. And he said, "You stay in car, I'll go top of the hill to her house." And I said, "Okay," although I offered to go. I don't know <laughs> why he didn't take me. <laughs> so then he was only gone about seven or eight minutes. He came back and he looked at me, and I said, "Oh, how was it?" He said. Oh, wrong woman. She think I there to wash her window. He had his, he was Japanese. He was dressed in black. And growing up in California, we, before I met Suzuki, I knew lots of Japanese people. But remember, they'd all been put in concentration camps, in internment camps. So they'd lost everything. So they were gardeners. They were cleaning women. We had a a Japanese cleaning woman in my, in my house when I was growing up. They were, they were laborers. They were, I suppose, window washers. <laughs> and then he laughed. He said, she think I there to wash, wash window. Too Brad, I know bring squeegee. <laughs> That's self-appreciation, right? As Big self appreciating little self. Little self appreciating big self. Too bad I know bring squeegee. <laughs> then a few months later, we, I used to drive him back and forth between Palo Alto and San Francisco. Every time he, we'd pass Hillsborough, he'd say, wonder if that woman needs window clean. I know I have squeegee today. And then he'd laugh again. Now, my friend told me oh, <laughs> that 80% of this story is just made up, but I remember it. It really happened, you know. <laughs> it did happen. That's how we develop mythology. That's how we, we, we've received this teaching from our teachers, and they've received it, 
all the way back to our great mama Prajnaparamita, <laughs> who is giving birth to it all the time. So that's the wonderful side of consciousness. <clears throat> and that's what I want to say today. <clears throat> <clears throat>